Hello and welcome to Altar of a Cowgirl. My name is Forrest Greenwell and we're still on our artist's way bullshit. But it's not bullshit, it's magic and it's actually wonderful. And I missed last week because it was a little bit busy. So we're on week seven now, although actually week eight as I'm saying this. So there's going to be another episode coming up right after this. So... If you are avidly listening to these and waiting for them, that is your heads up that week eight is on its way before week nine starts. So let's dive into week seven, recovering a sense of connection. I also want to say that we've made it past the halfway point. That's pretty impressive. And I also find for myself, maybe others feel this way, that once I start to get to this middle part, especially holding a container, I start to get a little weary of the ending point of when I won't have the structure or the context to move through these things and to connect with myself. And even though I've done this course so many times, that's been a really common theme that has shown up in our conversations. And I just want to acknowledge that that's so okay that's I don't want to say it's a normal way to feel I don't know if it's normal but it is an acceptable way to feel to be unsure of what comes next and as a result to kind of be like well then what am I doing I feel like a defense mechanism can sometimes be not doing the thing that we really want and really love because we don't actually want it to end outside of our own terms so that feels very appropriate as we dive into recovering a sense of connection. How can we stay connected not just to ourselves and our practices, but also to the people who support us in them? So the first part of this chapter is listening. The ability to listen is a skill that we're honing with both our morning pages and our artist dates. The pages train us to hear past our sensor, and the artist dates help us to pick up the voice of inspiration. And while both of these activities are apparently unconnected to the actual act of making art, they are critical to the creative process. So art is not about thinking something up. It's actually the opposite. It's about getting something down. And the directions are important here. If we are trying to think something up, we are straining to reach for something that is just beyond our grasp. Up there in the stratosphere where art lives on high. But when we get something down, there is no strain. We're not doing, we're getting. Someone or something else is doing the doing, and instead of reaching for inventions, we are engaged with listening. When an actor is in the moment, he or she is engaged with listening to the next right thing creatively. And when a painter is painting, he or she may begin with a plan, but that plan is soon surrendered to the, the painting's own plan. This is often expressed as the brush takes the next stroke. In dance and composition and sculpture, the experience is the same. And we are more the conduit than the creator of what we express. Art is the act of tuning in and dropping down the well. It's as though all the stories, painting, music, performances in the world just live under the surface of our normal consciousness. Like an underground river, they flow to us as a stream of ideas that we can tap it down into. And as artists, we drop down into that well, into the stream. We hear what's down there and we act on it, more like taking dictation than anything fancy having to do with our own art. A friend of mine is a superb film director who is known for meticulous planning, and yet he often shoots his most brilliant shots from the seat of his pants, quickly grabbing that shot that comes to him as he works. These moments of clear inspiration require that we move into them on face. 
We can practice these small leaps of faith daily in our pages and on our art estates. We can learn not only to listen, but also to hear with increasing accuracy that inspired, intuitive voice that says, do this, try this, say this. Most writers have had the experience of catching a poem or a paragraph or two of formed writing, and we consider these to be small miracles. What we fail to realize is that they are, in fact, the norm. We are the instrument more than the author of our work. Michelangelo said to have remarked that he released David from the marble block that he found him in. The painting has a life of its own. I try to let it come through, said Jackson Pollock. And when I teach screenwriting, I'm reminding my students that their movie already exists in its entirety. Their job is to listen for it, watch it with their mind's eye, and write it down. The same may be said of all art. If painting and sculptures wait for us, then sonatas wait for us. Books, plays, and poems wait for us, too. Our job is simply to get them down, and to do that, we drop down the well. Some people find it easier to picture the stream of inspiration as being like radio waves of all sorts of broken broadcasts at all times. And with practice, we learn how to hear the desired frequency on request. We tune in to that frequency that we want. Like a parent, we learn to hear the voice of our current brainchild among the other children's voices. Once that you accept, it is natural to create, you can begin with a second idea. That the creator will hand you whatever you need for the project. The minute, the minute, that you are willing to accept the help of this collaborator, you will see useful bits of help everywhere in your life. And be alert. There is a second voice, a higher harmonic, adding to and augmenting your inner creative voice. This voice frequently shows itself in synchronicity. You will hear the dialogue you need, fight the right song for a sequence, see the exact pink color you almost had in mind, and so forth. You will have the experience of finding things, books, seminars, tossed out stuff, that happen to fit with what you're doing. Learn to accept the possibility that the universe is helping you with what you're doing. Become willing to see the hand of God and accept it as a friend's offer to help with what you are doing, because many of us unconsciously harbor the fearful belief that God will find our creations decadent or frivolous, or worse, and we tend to discount this creator-to-creator help. Try to remember that God is the great artist. Artists like other artists. Expect the universe to support your dream. It will. <sighs> Perfectionism. Once again, in this book, we round back to this. Um, and we do that a couple times because it keeps coming up, right? You think, okay, like the perfectionism, I will be able to get over that. And it just has so many insidious ways that it comes forward. So um, this is really actually the premise of the whole book is to remove perfectionism so that we can find progress. Uh, and I mean, you can look at what this work does in so many different ways but that's really what I take out of it is just like how it is that we're told that we have to have these complete and filled out structures and ways of being and how it is that that actually a lot of the time doesn't work for us it doesn't actually allow us to do the things that we want to do so yeah we're looking at perfectionism again in this chapter so Chili Olson correctly calls it the knife of perfectionism attitude in art. You may call it something else. Getting it right, you may call it, or fixing it before I go any further. You may call it having standards. And what you should be calling it is perfectionism. So perfectionism has nothing to do with getting it right. 
It has nothing to do with fixing things, and it has nothing to do with standards. Perfectionism is a refusal to let yourself move ahead. It is a loop, an obsessive and debilitating closed system that causes you to get stuck in the details of what you're writing or painting or making and to lose sight of the whole. So instead of creating freely and allowing errors to reveal themselves later as insights, we often get mired in the details right. We correct our originality and a uniformity that lacks passion and spontaneity. Do not fear mistakes, Miles Davis told us. There are none. The perfectionist fixes one line of a poem over and over until no lines are right. The perfectionist redraws the chin line on a portrait until the paper tears. The perfectionist writes so many versions of a scene that she never gets to the rest of the play. The perfectionist writes, paints, creates, with one eye on their audience. So instead of enjoying this process, the perfectionist is constantly grading the results. The perfectionist has married the logic side of the brain. The critic reigns supreme in the perfectionist's creative household. A brilliant descriptive prose passage is critiqued with a white glove approach. Mm, but what about this comma? Is this how you spell X, Y, Z? And for the perfectionist, there are no first drafts, rough sketches, warm-up exercises. Every draft is meant to be final, perfect, and set in stone. Midway through a project, the perfectionist decides to read it all over, outline it, see where it's going. And where is it going? Well, nowhere very fast. Because the perfectionist is never satisfied. The perfectionist never says, this is pretty good, I think I'll just keep going. To the perfectionist, there's always room for improvement. And the perfectionist calls this humility, and when in reality, it is egotism. It is pride that makes us want to write a perfect script, paint a perfect painting, perform a perfect audition monologue. And perfectionism is not a quest for the best. It is a pursuit of the worst in ourselves. The part that tells us that nothing we do will ever be good enough. That we should try again. No, actually we should not. <laughs> Painting is never finished. It simply stops in interesting places, said Paul Gardner. A book is never finished, but at a certain point you stop writing it and go on to the next thing. A film is never cut perfectly, but at a certain point you let it go and call it done. That is a normal part of creativity. Letting go. We always do the best that we can by the light that we have to see by. Risk! Question. What would I do if I didn't have to do it perfectly? Answer. A great fucking deal more than I am. It, it doesn't say fucking in the book. I added that just for context. <laughs> We've all heard that the unexamined life is not worth living, but consider too that the unlived life is not worth examining. The success of creative recovery hinges on our ability to move out of the head and into action. This brings us squarely to risk. And most of us are practiced at talking ourselves out of risk. We're skilled speculators on the probable pain of self-exposure. I'll look like an idiot, we say, conjuring images of our first acting class, our first hobbled short story, our terrible drawings. Part of the game here is lining up the masters and measuring our baby stunts against their perfected craft. We don't compare our student films to George Lucas's student films. Instead, we compare them to Star Wars. We deny that in order to do something well, we must first be willing to do it badly. And so instead, we opt for setting our limits at the point when we feel assured of success. Living within these bounds, we may feel stifled, smothered, despairing, bored. But yes, we do feel safe. 
and safety is a very expensive illusion. In order to risk, we must jettison our accepted limits. We must break through I can't because... Because I'm too old, too broke, too shy, too proud, too self-defended, timorous. Usually when we say that we can't do something, what we mean is that we won't do something unless we can guarantee that we will do it perfectly. Working artists know the folly of this stance. There is a common joke among directors. Oh yeah, I always know exactly how I should direct the picture. After I'm done directing it. As blocked artists, we unrealistically expect and demand success from ourselves and recognition of that success from others. And with that, as an unspoken demand, a great many things remain outside our sphere of possibility. As actors, we tend to allow ourselves to be typecast rather than working to expand our range. As singers, we stay married to our safe material. And as songwriters, we try to repeat formula hits. In this way, artists who do not appear blocked to the outside eye experience themselves blocked internally unable to take the risk of moving into new and more satisfying artistic territory. And once we're willing to accept that anything worth doing might even be worth doing badly, our options widen. If I didn't have to do it perfectly, I would try. Stand-up comedy, modern dancing, whitewater rafting, archery learning, German figure drawing, figure skating, being platinum blonde, puppeteering, trapeze, water ballet, polo, wearing red lipstick, taking a couture class, writing short stories, reading my poetry in public, a spontaneous tropical vacation, learning to shoot video, learning to ride a bike, taking a watercolor class. The options are endless. And the moving raging bull. Boxer Jake LaModa's manager brother explains to him why he should shed some weight and fight an unknown opponent. After an intricate spiel that leaves LaModa baffled, he, he concludes, So do it. If you win, you win. And if you lose, you win. It is always that way with taking risks. And to put it differently, very often a risk is worth taking simply for the sake of taking it. There is something enlivening about expanding our self-definition, and a risk does exactly that. Selecting a challenge and meeting it creates a sense of self-empowerment that becomes the ground for further successful challenges. Viewed this way, running a marathon increases your chances of writing a full-length play. Writing a full-length play gives you a leg up on a marathon. In your head, complete the following sentence. If I didn't have to do it perfectly, I would try. Jealousy. I've often heard is a normal human emotion. And when I hear that, I think maybe your jealousy, but not mine. My jealousy roars in the head, tightens the chest, and massages my stomach lining with a cold fest as it searches out the best grip. I have long regarded jealousy as my greatest weakness. And only recently have I seen it for the tough love friend that it is. Jealousy is a map. Each of our jealousy maps differs. Each of us will probably be surprised by some of the things we discover on our own. I, for example, have never been eaten alive with resentment over the success of women novelists. But I took an unhealthy interest in the fortunes and misfortunes of women playwrights. I was their harshest critic until I wrote my first play. And with that action, my jealousy vanished, replaced by a feeling of camaraderie. My jealousy had actually been a mask for my fear of doing something that I really wanted to do, but was not yet brave enough to take action toward. Jealousy is always a mask for fear, 
fear that we aren't able to get what we want, frustration that somebody else seems to be getting what is rightfully ours, even if we are too frightened to reach for it. At its root, jealousy is a stingy emotion. It doesn't allow for the abundance and multiplicity of the universe. Jealousy tells us there is room for only one. One poet, one painter, one whatever you dream of being. The truth, revealed by action in the direction of our dreams, is that there is room for all of us. But jealousy produces tunnel vision. It narrows our ability to see things in perspective. It strips us of our ability to see other options. The biggest lie that jealousy tells us is that we have no choice but to be jealous. Perversely, jealousy strips us of our will to act when action holds the key to our freedom. So there's an exercise here called the jealousy map. Basically, you're going to create three columns if you want to, which is an exercise in the book. And there's a who, a why, and an action slash antidote. So one of the examples here is who am I jealous of? My sister Libby. Why? She has a real art studio. The action or antidote. Fix the spare room. Alright, so you can kind of look down and go, okay, who is it that I'm jealous of? Who is it that I look at and I'm like, whoa, I want to have that. And then what is that thing? And what is your version of letting that into your life? Be as specific and accurate as you can. And when jealousy bites, like a snake bite, it requires an immediate antidote. So when we're using this task we can also recognize that we're also building neurological pathways that allow us to ask questions and assess our jealousy not just long term you know years later but actually in the moment in the moment and going does this serve me yes it does it serves me information what does that information tell me what information can i take from this to input into my life even the biggest changes start with small ones. And green is the color of jealousy, but it's also the color of hope. And it's also the color of our heart, right? This is, this is about yearning. What is it that I desire? What is it that I want to feel connected to? And when you learn to harness its fierce energy on your own behalf, jealousy is a part of the fuel towards a greener and more verdant future. <sighs> There's also another exercise called archaeology. Um... And the idea here is that like we're going through things that, as a kid that we wanted, that we lacked, um, that you needed more of. And it's just a list where you complete phrases. So as a kid, I missed a chance too. As a kid, I lacked. As a kid, I could have used. I dreamed of being. I wanted a blank. In my house, we never had enough. I needed more blank. I'm sorry that I will never again see for years I have missed and wondered about. I beat myself up about the loss of. And then after that, we're going to look at the positive inventory. I have a loyal friend in. One thing I like about my town is. I think I have a nice. Writing my morning pages has shown me I can. I'm taking a greater interest in. I believe I'm getting better at. My artist has started to pay more attention to. My self-care is. I feel more 
possibly my creativity is. So there's some good food for thought there. You don't have to answer all those questions. I just wanted to offer them to you in case there were things there to excavate, to look at. And sometimes we just need validation, right? We just need to be validated in that, like, I didn't have a lot of art supplies in my house. You know, we only had, um, you know, soccer equipment or whatever it is. Um, maybe my parents didn't have a lot of time to observe me and, like, nurture me and give me, um, you know, positive feedback on the things that I was doing that made me happy. There are so many things there, and I feel like we maybe don't all have access to a therapist and that's okay right um we can ask ourselves these questions we're allowed to look at ourselves and have places to put those answers down we're allowed to have conversations with ourselves we're also allowed to find people around us who can also hold space for the conversations that we do still need to have and the questions that we need to have answered or heard out loud so maybe some of these can be a prompt to get together with someone and talk someone you feel safe with maybe not but I always find that I need to talk through things, I need to feel validated, especially if a lot of it comes from a place of not having been validated in the past. And on that, we end chapter seven, we end week seven, recovering a sense of connection. I love you. I hope that you're well. I'll see you next time. And just as a small reminder, once again, my name is Forrest Greenwell. You can find my personal Instagram at cowgiroracle, and you can also follow this podcast at altar of a cowgirl on Instagram. I hope this finds you well. Thank you for listening. Love to hear feedback if you have it, and I hope that you have a really fucking wonderful day. I'll catch you next time.